right in. We're looking at the Psalms uh, again, and uh, I, I was stuck, struck by Psalm 133. Uh, that's a, totally appropriate that I thought I would just jump right in and start just sharing it. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Here you see this beautiful picture of harmony and unity in terms of abundance, in terms of blessing, uh, in terms of uh, this picture of overflowing, of anointing. And it got me thinking about, uh, particularly about church and unity and harmony and what does really all of that mean uh, as we're going to look at today. And it, when I thought about unity, I thought, what, is, what, do we, what does that even mean? I think sometimes we think of unity for unity's sake. And in church history, that's never really been the case. Uh, if anything, you have to u- unify and coalesce around a sh- not, even, not even a shared set of principles or anything. Uh, in terms of a church, at our core, we unify not around stuff on a page or a building or anything. You, essentially, uh, it is always unifying around the person and work and deity of Jesus Christ, that that's who you unify around. And the earliest creed in the church that predates even uh, the, the gospel of, of Mark, which is the oldest gospel, even 1 Corinthians, some people think, is actually older than Mark. But there's a creed that predates all of that. How do we know? Because it shows up in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and it's, it's very simple. Jesus is Lord. That is what the church has always unified around. This was back 2,000 years ago. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have a Bible as we have today. I mean, that, is, that was the, what they unified around, the lordship and the rule and the reign of Jesus as the Savior and Lord and King of the world. So throughout the past 2,000 years, that is what the church has hopefully tried to unify around. And of course, historically, we haven't done that perfectly uh, there are now, I don't know, I forgot how many thousands of denominations there are in the world, but it's a lot. And there's scores of opinions and differences and all that, but in the midst of all of that, there are people, right? There's people like you and me who seek to unify around the person and Lord, lordship of Jesus. And, but because people are involved, the church is not as perfect as people would wish it would be. Because what you're going to hear about today, the question is, is unity done to us or is unity done by us? But you cannot blame Jesus for the church not being perfect. And I'm going to explain what I mean. Here's a very deep theological statement. You ready? Jesus doesn't suck. (laughs) At all. We can agree on that. People can suck. Can we agree on that? Yes. So it goes like this. A lot of people believe this now. People in the church suck, therefore Jesus sucks. Listen to me. If you take that approach, and there's a lot of people that might listen to this later, if you take that approach, you've made a serious error. A pivotal philosophical, theological error because you're not differentiating between people in Jesus. And this does not let people off the hook for all the stupid things we do and say. But if you don't make that differentiation, 
In so doing, you do sow division. Church is hard because church is full of sinners. The reason why your church, and not just this one, but if you're listening at home or listening to this later, wherever you are, the reason why your church is not perfect is because you and I are in it. Do you hear what I'm saying? So people go, why does my church have problems? Your church has problems because you have problems. And because you're in it. And I'm in it. And likewise, because people have problems, yeah, the church can have problems. But also, likewise, if if people in the church are spiritually healthy, if they're bearing fruit, if they're growing in their faith, if they're walking in love, if they're growing in grace, if they're growing in personal holiness, hey, the church gets healthy too, right? So when it comes to unity, there's no us and them. There just isn't. We need to be patient with church and God's design of church because if you don't have this right view of differentiating between sinners and Jesus, you will have so much pain and agony in trying to understand your relationship with God. If, but if you unify around the same set of shared lordship of Jesus, that's a good starting place. If we adapt Jesus' view of the, wor- of the church, this can be a huge part of your healing because you will stop blaming God for things that God didn't do, but that sinners did. And you'll stop expecting imperfect people to suddenly be perfect. So you hear this a lot nowadays. I don't know what I believe in anymore. I don't trust the big C church. I have a friend who is a church planner here in High Point. He's planning a Presbyterian church at the YWCA. And when you go plan a church, you have to do a lot of research and homework on the community and all of that. And he told me a crazy statistic. He said that High Point, 50%, 5-0 of High Point is agnostic, which means that what that is is, I don't know what I believe, therefore I believe in nothing. 50%, thousands and thousands of people. You hear that a lot. This town is largely unchurched. There's, very, there's some great churches, but there's not that many. I was in Charlotte yesterday. I could throw a stone and hit so many churches. What do they call it? Like the belt buckle or the Bible belt or whatever? I mean, it is so many churches in that town. I mean, great churches. Think about it this way. If I got behind Keith's beautiful piano and I said, I'm going to play some Mozart, just name a sonata, and I'm going to crank it out, I can guarantee you I will suck. I will play Mozart very, very badly. Now, will you blame me or will you blame Mozart? Thank you. You will blame me, as you should. The same thing happens with church. People blame God when Christians play Jesus badly. No excuse when we do play Jesus badly, by the way. But you can't blame God. If a performer nails the sonata by Mozart, will the performer and Mozart both get the praise, as they should? And you get the experience of getting carried away by the harmony and the beauty and the wonder of what you just sat through. And when we play Jesus well, and we can and we do, other people get caught up in the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is in your life. 
See, this is the church at her best. And it begins, though, in your heart. It begins in your relationship with God, not someone else's problem. You are in control of what you say and what you do. As Jesus said, we're not defiled by what we eat or what we drink. We're defiled by what comes out of our mouths. And you will be judged by every errant word that you have spoken. It's a tough word. All that to say is that unity starts or ends with you and me. I've hesitated to tell stories about this whole denomination thing all year because I want worship to be about worship, and I have done my best to do that. But there's a story I'm going to tell that is very appropriate. About, I don't know, nine months ago, someone who's on the traditionalist side came up to me and said, I'm out of here. I am pulling my money. I'm done with these people. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Then a few months later, someone emails me and goes, they're on the other side of this thing, and they go, I'm out of here. It was, like, it was like two sides of the same coin, except different. And they're like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And do you know what I told both of those men? Don't do it. Don't do it. Because if you do it, you will be perpetuating the very thing that you claim to be against. You will be creating the conditions and the climate that you don't want to see happen. But by your choice... That is what is happening. Now, is that easy? Absolutely not. It is not. But is it mature? Is it loving? Is it godly? Yes. And to give these two guys credit, and they know who they are, I, they stuck with it. They're still here. And I give them deep, deep credit for being men of integrity, families of integrity, for their faith and their love. So when God looks at the church, what does he see? I don't, I don't know. I'm not God. But I have a few ideas of what does he see. What is his vision for church? For one, I would say I think the church should exist on a completely different wavelength than the world. We do not take a knee to the elephant or the donkey. We are a third way. We are a peculiar people. That we do not march to the beat of the world. You see that throughout the New Testament. We, are, we should be completely different than the world around us. If salt loses its flavor, what good is it? If you lose the essence of who you are and what you're called to do, then what good is it? So I would say one way of Jesus's view of the church is saltiness over size. I'm going to explain what I mean. Saltiness over size. I've worked in churches, some very, very large churches in Charlotte. I've worked in Methodist churches over the past 21 years. And that's crazy because I'm only 26, so I started when I was five. <laughs> and <laughs> inevitably, every conversation I have with people, they go, oh, where, where do you go to church? And you go, oh, so-and-so. And they go, oh, what's the next question? How many people go there? Right? Oh, no, about 500. Oh, Really? My church only has 200 people. Yours is bigger than mine. That's not fair. Have you heard about Brad Shazam down at Explosion of the Holy Spirit Church? They have 2,000 people at their church. Oh, they must be very important. Picture in your mind, you've got a little pile of salt, 
just a little bit in your palm of your hand. In your other hand, you have a, big, a bigger pile of flavorless salt. From God's perspective, what's more important? The little pile. Quality over quantity? Now, as American, good American consumers, we tend to think that bigger is always better. Sometimes it might be. But in the kingdom of God perspective, that's not always the case. Size is not necessarily mean health. When the church stays focused on being salty, size takes care of itself. Healthy things grow. If you stay focused on who Jesus calls us to be, unity also takes care of itself. But we have to be united around the same goal. As Jesus says here in Mark chapter 9, it might not be the, the passage you would expect me to talk about today, but you'll see that it's actually very appropriate. And I'm going to read the whole context because it's important when you read his parables that you read the whole thing in context and you see his train of thought. Um, so John 9, 38. And I'm reading off a page, but I would encourage you to bring a physical Bible even on your phone if you want so that even when I take that off the screen, you can keep reading it if you want to. Because if you're like me, I'm already thinking about lunch. Sometimes. Not right now. So you might need a Bible with you sometimes. But John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Hey, we saw Presbyterians doing ministry. We told them to get out of town. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But then he, then he, he shifts here. He starts talking about sin. He starts talking about personal accountability. He starts talking about growing in holiness and righteousness and pursuing a holy life, okay? So the shift here. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin... It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, don't do that. This is, this is not literal. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two good eyes and be thrown into hell. For where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Here's another shift. Salt. This is why Jesus has to be the son of God because he just makes these, <laughs> these shifts in his teaching. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves. Don't forget this last phrase. And live in peace with each other. You must have the qualities of salt and live in peace with each other. Somehow these two things are connected. Saltiness over size. So when I read this in context, you see Jesus saying, okay, don't lead other people's in, people into sin by your life or your words and make sure that you're dealing with your own stuff before you talk about somebody else's stuff. And so this is why Jesus is saying, what good is salt if it loses its flavor? What good is your faith if it loses its flavor? It's pointless. 
It's as good as dirt. So what does salt do? We obviously know what salt does. It provides, it provides distinction. It sets apart that which was kind of boring. Like if I gave you a potato, and you, have you ever eaten a raw potato? Not fun. Very gassy experience, actually. Sorry. But if I give you a potato with salt on it, much better experience. It provides distinction. It augments what's already there. Salt also preserves things. Salt holds things um, for the future. Salt heals wounds. Salt can cleanse. But if salt loses all of those qualities, what good is it? What's the point of it? If Christians lose their distinctiveness, if we consistently give in to sin or lead others to sin, if we cease to preserve the doctrines of God, if we cease to provide healing to the world around us, if we cease to proclaim the cleansing blood of Christ to the world through the bloodshed on the cross, will we have forgotten the purpose of why we exist at all? This is one thing I've learned is that when the church ceases to look externally, it eventually turns internally and it eats itself alive. Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they, give, they help everything grow better. Put them in a big pile and they stink horribly. And they might catch on fire. Thank you for laughing at my joke, by the way. Unity starts and begins with me. We are the times in which we live, as St. Augustine said. It's not someone else's time. This is your day. This is our day. This is what we have. If unifying around the person of Jesus starts with me and you, it begins in your heart. For out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. So I would warn anyone on either way you feel what's, what's going on to warn you about having a divided heart. Because one day I'm, I'm going to be an old man. And I don't, what I care about is your heart. What God cares about is your heart. And your heart being at peace with God. And so beware of idolatry in your heart. Beware of trying to follow two masters. Because you can't do it. Beware of bowing the knee to whatever idol in your life might be. But giving lip service to Jesus as Lord. You can't fool God. God knows your heart. God knows your heart better than anyone else. That's all God even looks at is your heart. He doesn't look at the externals like men and women do. Like, think about this. How many people in the room are married? You married? Come on, put them up. Married people in the room. Okay. Now, before you got married, you probably dated somebody else or some multiple people. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But you probably did. Maybe you were in love with someone else before you got married. I don't know. But let's say you decided, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep a box of those letters we wrote each other or pictures of this person under the bed. And when life got difficult or stressful or full of anxiety, you pull that box out. And you just look at those pictures a little bit. Your spouse is sleeping over here. You still are like, oh, I remember that time. That was fun. Well, well, how, how would that work out for your marriage? Or think about if your spouse came to you one day and said, you know what, honey, I love you. But for 51 weeks a year, I'm going to love you. 
but for one weekend a year, I just want to be with Leroy. I picked the name Leroy because no one here is named Leroy. Just one weekend a year, I want to be with Leroy. But I love you. You have 95% of my love. How would that work for your marriage? I think one thing we can agree on is that we need to repent of having divided hearts and divided affections and confused internal thoughts because divided hearts do lead to divided churches. Jesus does not say in that parable in Mark chapter 9, if your brother's eye is causing him to sin, gouge it out for him. Make sure to tell him how much he sucks while you're doing it. No. He's saying, if you're going to talk about sin, deal with your own sin. And let, God will help you in that. It's not like you're alone in that. He loves you. He wants you to cut things out of your life that aren't helping your relationship with God. But it's like when I read this parable of Jesus, it's like he's saying, if salt loses its flavor, what good is it? If you're not holy, how will people know that you belong to me? They won't. If you're not different enough to add flavor to the world around you, how will others know me through you? If you look just like the world and you talk just like them, how will they know to whom you belong? It's a trick question because they won't. If you compromise on your own sin or cause others to sin, you will lose your own flavor and the whole thing collapses. I was reading a book by a pastor named John Tyson and he's a pastor of a church called Church of the City in New York. And uh, wonderful preacher, by the way. And he told a story of the first few years of their church. They were doing a lot of good things, and they were growing. And so, like, a big newspaper ran a story on, like, the New York Times or the Post or whatever. And he was so excited about it. And they came in, and they ran this story. And they, he, he, when he saw the story, he was soon upset. Because what the reporter had to say was, is the church is fine, but they were kind of country in their music. The teaching was kind of simple. And it wasn't what he wanted to hear, right? And so he said, slowly I felt my heart begin to shift. And I began to watch my uh, people in my church, and I began to criticize them. I began to be disappointed in them. Because they weren't living up to the standard that the newspaper said we should have lived up to. And I began to define church by what the world said it should be and not who Jesus said it should be. And he said, I felt this bitterness in my heart welling up. And I felt it start to sort of take me over this, this criticism. And I began to view my church through the lens of the world. And I begin to judge my church as if I have a right to do that. And I began to make an idol out of what other people think. And my heart was divided and I had dual allegiances and a house divided amongst itself will not stand. And it goes like this with compromise. You soon start apologizing for the cross. You soon start apologizing for the, the harsh words of Jesus sometimes. And you can't do that. 
I'm not smarter than him. We are simply messengers of what he has to say. But if you start marching to the beat of those with itching ears, you will lose the power and you will lose the blessing of God. John Tyson went on to say, I talked to a church planner from Ethiopia and I asked him what his opinion of the American church is. And his phrase is amazing. He said, they have so much food, but so little power. Why is that? Why do we have so little power? We've forgotten to uphold the holy, pure word of God and offer grace to the world around us. We are not smarter than the apostles and the prophets that have gone before us. And he said, I felt that subtle shift within me. And when I began to do that, it affected the unity of my church. And it also affected our saltiness. It affected our witness. Because we weren't doing it God's way anymore. We were trying to do it the way that the New York Post said we were supposed to do it. And by the grace of God, he realized his mistake. And he turned his focus back on what it needed to be on which is simply proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world. You know, I don't know about y'all, but I've sat through some sermons. Not here, but I've sat through some sermons. You've sat through some sermons in your lifespan where I have heard many, many preachers talk about politics from the pulpit. And every time I'm like, that is so stupid. What an immature take. Because you you, you are unnecessarily dividing your audience. Now, Jesus, Jesus was not afraid to divide his audience, was he? No. He did it a lot. I mean, he said things like, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. To do, sometimes mothers and fathers will be, divorced from, will be separated from each other, brothers and sisters. What is he saying? He's saying, I have come to call sinners to repentance. And some sinners will do that, but some won't. But if there's one thing we can agree upon is that we have all sinned of the glory, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, black nor white. We have all, we're all in the same situation. We are all in need of repentance. And repentance means that God is not done with you yet. It means that he wants to heal you and make you whole. But he might want to put a finger on something in your heart that's an idol. That's an idol. And that he wants to tear it down. Because he demands allegiance fully from your life. Not 95%. Not pulling the box out in the middle of the night. Thinking about what used to be. Christ's call is for all people to unite around the cross of Christ. To come and die so that we might live. As Jesus said, anyone that wants to come after me, take up your cross. Come follow me. That'll divide your audience, won't won't it? Yeah, it will. Why does he say that? Because he knows what we need more than we know what we need. He knows that left to ourselves, oh, we're all going to die. But apart from following him, there's a second death, there's a spiritual death. But Christ knows that unless we die to ourselves, we will never be able to receive life in the fullness of God. So in a moment, I'm going to invite up our Stevens ministers that are here today. Come on up, Stevens ministers that are here. These are church members who uh, have a wonderful ministry of healing and counsel and 
uh, anointing. And I'm going to invite every single person in this room, everybody, to come up and kneel at this prayer rail and let these wonderful men and women anoint you with oil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new each day. Lord, thank you that your invitation to call a call to come and die to ourselves is a call to life. God, we're a people whose hearts are churning, 